Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest on Around the Coin is Michael Kong, the CEO of Phantom Foundation. Michael, prior to Phantom, uh, was an advisor to the project. And it's an absolutely crazy story about how he went through the process of being an outside advisor to an audit of the company, to discovering fraud, to then taking over the organization, to turning it into the success that it is today. So talk about crypto drama. This is some of the best content I've heard. Uh, Michael is an incredibly authentic and intelligent uh, speaker. The organization Phantom Foundation has raised $40 million. Uh, at its peak, the Phantom Crypto coin had a market cap of $8 million, Sorry, $8 billion. Today, as of recording, it's roughly $1 billion. We talked about what Phantom is, what they're trying to accomplish in the world, uh, and what some of the interesting challenges that they've observed in the crypto space is. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Michael Kong. All right, Michael, we're live. Thanks for hopping on today. You are uh, running an awesome project, uh, foundation, company, protocol, whatever you want to call it. The foundation itself, uh, I'd love to talk about just the structure. Let's lay things out on the table first. So you have the foundation, the token. Uh, how do you think about the, the, the pieces on the table? Like what, wh- what are you currently working with when it comes to phantom? Um, yeah. So first of all, thank you very much, uh, Michael and, um, the rest of the crew around the coin for, um, you know, doing this interview with me. Really appreciate it. Um, so in terms of like the structure, I mean, We've got the like the foundation, and we've got like the foundation. E- we've got the phantom ecosystem, right? So it's kind of like how there's like the Ethereum foundation and there's the Ethereum ecosystem, right? And then a lot of like different players on like both sides, right? So that's kind of like the way I like to think about it. So the objective of like the phantom foundation, you know, is, is to like grow and develop um, the phantom ecosystem, right? And that really comes down to two things. One of them is and the most important ob- objective for us is to work on the underlying technology. So we're the ones that originally built up, you know, this consensus engine that we have, you know, combined with uh, the Ethereum virtual machine to give you that smart contract functionality. And, you know, <clears throat> that took us like one and a half years to get up and running approximately or a bit longer um, into production, right? And we're continuing to make improvements to it. And we just had like a major release um, just today, actually, um, to make synchronization nodes um, more efficient, right? So that's our primary objective to keep improving and iterating on the consensus, keep um, improving, like, for example, like the smart contract execution stack so you can execute smart contracts more faster. And it's all about like achieving, um, you know, uh, faster transactions, cheaper transactions, more secure transactions. So that's the first aim. And the second aim more generally is more of like, in terms of like business marketing and, and, and PR. And that is, you know, promoting the chain, telling people why they should build a phantom, getting more developers in, getting more users, and really helping them. So providing them with like a whole bunch of like infrastructure services, uh, not just like the underlying chain technology, but other like services like APIs and 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 uh, servers, et cetera, as well as, you know, connecting them with other projects in the ecosystem, maybe doing some financial support, marketing support, integration support um, to really help grow the ecosystem. Because that's what it, it, it all really comes down to. So that's what the foundation does. And the Phantom ecosystem is like a collection of like individuals and entities that really just like came to Phantom. And I think like the interesting thing about Phantom is that like the, the vast majority of the growth that we have on chain has been organic. And so, you know, it's been like 
uh, DeFi projects that began on Phantom and they were like high quality and that helped attract more users, which helped, uh, attract more developers. And so this community is very much independent from the foundation. You know, sometimes we have some disagreements within people in the foundation, uh, uh, in the ecosystem. Sometimes we have a lot of agreement. Um, but on the whole, you know, we're really building for them. And, and that, that is who like the ecosystem is. There's all those users and all those people doing the daily transactions. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of daily transactions on a daily basis. So that's really like the groundwork. Um, that, that's, that, that's fine in a nutshell. Got it. Got it. And the way generally companies will start in this approach would be you raise money from a private institutional investor. You start a, a typical LLC or C corp if you're in the US. You build out, you use that money and that team to build out the token. And then you issue the token publicly with the ICO or airdrops, direct listing. <clears throat> and then you really emphasize the team is the, the sole goal of the, the funded company is to dissolve the company and just have the value be in the token as it moves to decentralization. Is that the general structure that, e, that Phantom has taken? Or is there something or is there another twist to it? I'm curious. I'm always curious about the, the, the early funding economics and tokenomics because yeah. they're structurally so unique compared to typical startup venture. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's one of the, uh, many unique things about like crypto, right? So like Phantom, um, did his ICO back in, uh, 2017, 2018. And yeah, it was one of the biggest ICOs of like the tail end of the ICO boom, as I like to call it. So this was like, uh, February, March, 20, 2018 was when it started. Um, so, um, you know, we, we finished the ICO in June of 2018 and it ended up being massively oversubscribed. And so the amount of money that it ended up raising was just a bit under $41 million, I believe, right? So uh, the funds went into the Phantom Foundation, um, used to build and promote like the Phantom technology as described before. And a lot of the funding <laughs> was used to uh, basically like develop the initial platform. <laughs> so we hired like a bunch of developers uh, to build out, you know, this asynchronous technology that we have. <laughs> that was like always, always like the original vision. Uh, um, to be like faster and cheaper and more efficient than say like Ethereum. Um, so that, that's, that's what the funds were used for at the time. And since then, we've actually managed to grow the funds, uh, much more substantially via a lot of it has to do with like, uh, DeFi yield farming, in particular uh, through the efforts of, um, you know, Andre Cronier. He was actually with Phantom from the beginning. So he helped get Phantom in, um, to like yield farming from the very early days of like early 2020 to basically to the present day. And so we've been able to grow those reserves a lot. And, you know, the, the reserves are belong to the foundation, but they're used to like grow the chain. So for example, we've used them for an incentive program. We've used them obviously to build, you know, the underlying development. We've used them to like hire people to promote, uh, the chain. So things like business development, marketing, PR, and, you know, are paid for like, um, infrastructure providers to launch on chain to integrate with Phantom, uh, for the benefit of the developers. <laughs> so that's like, the, the structure at the moment it's it's really as i mentioned before you know you've got the phantom foundation and you've got the phantom ecosystem and the phantom foundation is tasked with helping to grow the phantom ecosystem hmm. all right well that was a great answer uh uh can you define uh yield farming for me <laughs> so yield farming is essentially when you um you put some money that you have, right? So for example, it could be stable coins and stable coins are these like, um, uh, these cryptocurrencies that are, uh, supposed to be pegged one to one with the US dollar, right? <laughs> so for example, uh, and there's many different kinds of stable coins, right? And I won't get into all of the models because it's, it's a bit long. Uh, but for example, um, you can have a centralized stable coin, for example, like USDC and this stands for US dollar circle. And it's issued by this public company listed in the US called Circle. <laughs> and so they issue this cryptocurrency called USCC and they, and they keep $1 of US dollars in reserve that you can theoretically go to them and redeem your one USCC for one US dollar, right? And then with that one US dollar, uh, USCC, you can, you can put that money into like various different protocols on, on decentralized finance. And these protocols can be, um, you know, typically, you're, you're adding like liquidity to a liquidity pool. So, um, it's like in a form of an exchange. So, for example, like when you go to one of these central, decentralized exchanges and you want to swap one token for another, um, you, you have to like 
you know, provide, you, you need to interact with liquidity that's already there, right? Because there always needs to be another person on the other trade. It's kind of like how it is like makers and takers on traditional exchanges, right? So when you contribute, um, as a maker or when you add liquidity to these protocols, you get rewarded, um, in, in a couple of ways through these protocols. One is that you get awarded via, um, you know, the transaction fees on the network. And another way to get rewarded is via, you know, a new token that's minted, which is usually like a, a token that, that kind of like give, that, that allows you to kind of like control the protocol, right? So that's how you distribute like uh, control of the protocol rather than it being centralized in a particular like company. You can actually distribute tokens and they form essentially what's known as a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. And it's basically a collection of individuals that interact with a smart contract that kind of set the rules for the protocol. And so, you know, you, you get rewarding in trading fees, you get rewarding this token, the token has value, it's traded. That's essentially what yield farming is. Mm, good definition. And, and I know, and I know I'm throwing a lot of like different terms in there, yeah. so I can kind of break them down a bit. Yeah. It's, it's no. a little bit like weird, yeah, and yeah, no. if not really into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 sometimes I even like to ask the definitions of, of simple words because sometimes I feel that people define words slightly differently, you know, even, even what security means or, uh, uh, yeah, different words like that. Um, you, yeah. so you raised 40 million, you built out the, the foundation. How do you think about the productization today? So when you look at Phantom, um, you know, briefly, are there, do you think of this as a company or a, project that will launch different projects at a time but well, yeah I, am i describing that correctly uh, so you, could so, have, you know like, all different all different sorts of things yeah so like you know it is very it is very true that like you know that there might be a lot of developers in the phantom ecosystem that are developing like a whole bunch of different things right we've kind of seen that you know first it began with uh last year or the year before you know just with some like dexes and like you know, these protocols, we can swap one token for another. But now it's really branched out to many different sort of technologies, right? You know, we've got like lending and borrowing protocols. You've got all these sorts of like sophisticated, like cover ores, uh, cover cores, like options and derivatives and puts and um, a lot of different like uh, decentralized finance projects that you see on Ethereum, you kind of see on Phantom as well, right? And even with the existing uh, projects like SpiritSwap and SpeakySwap, these first two DEXs that launched on Phantom and, you know, help grow the Phantom ecosystem, they too are launching like, you know, new versions of the technology to make it better and more efficient. And so you definitely seen like a lot of more products being uh, built out in the Phantom ecosystem. Uh, but just to make it, um, it, it clear to your audience though, like, so I work for the Phantom Foundation and the Phantom Foundation isn't really in the business of developing these new applications. What it is in the business of doing is helping people develop these new applications, but not to do it ourselves. Because I think it's a very important principle that we don't, use our own development and resources to build applications on the network uh, to basically compete against people because then it has a chilling effect, then it reduces innovation and we're not really achieving our aim of growing and developing the phantom ecosystem, right? So um, what our aim is as a foundation in terms of technology is to focus not on the application layer, but focus on what's below it. So focus on building, you know, more efficient technology, faster consensus, you know, faster synchronization between nodes, to make it much more efficient for people to execute transactions through their applications on top of the network. So that's like our objective. But in the community, you've seen like a whole bunch of innovation and not just like in DeFi, but in NFTs. Like you've seen, I've seen like more like games being developed and I have like AMAs with like a few games, you know, this week and also like in subsequent weeks, there's metaverse has been deployed. There's your usual like like different collections. I think we have over a thousand collections of NFTs on Phantom. And now that is like relatively small compared to like other layer ones out there, but it is all just like organically driven. You know, the foundation has never gone out there and told people, you must build this, you must build that. Um, it's more like people come with ideas and we help them build it. Um, and I think that's a very important message that I want to um, uh, say to your audience out there, and especially developers who might be considering building on Phantom. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. 
they realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the, I was interviewing the guys from near protocol. And I think that that's a, that's a playbook that, that is emulated repetitively because it makes sense. It's like you have the piggy bank and you have the dozens or so people who are really focused on growing the value of the token. Is there, I'm curious on the tokenomics. So when the ICO happened, uh, we, we in hindsight, was there anything that you think should have been done differently? Or if you were to relaunch today, you would yeah. have differently in terms of how uh, tokens were distributed or vested or that kind of thing? But what did you learn? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go back, you know, a bit about the history of Phantom, you know, Phantom wasn't originally a project that I started. It wasn't um, a project um, that, that that has any of the original team members or almost like none of the... Um, you know, team members we have now were part of the original team. It used to be a Korean project and it used to be with these like so-called like, um, like post, like, uh, people who had PhDs and associate professors. They were talking about developing like a new technology, right? And, you know, it turns out that that, it, it turns out that that technology, you know, w- wasn't real in the end and we'll, and we'll kind of forward. And so how I got involved with Phantom was that I was an advisor to them, um, because I was working for a fund in Australia. That help launch them, help help them launch an ICO. So we help them with the structuring. We help them with setting up the ICO um, smart contract on Ethereum because they didn't have a chain um, built or anything close to it. Actually, we found out later, and also you know the legal setup and and just like general like advice about you know fundraising and ICOs in general and some technology stuff. Um, so you know there were like certain things with the token economics that I um you know I I didn't like. So just to give you an example. Um, they originally, I think the original team wanted to raise $60 million, right? And I said that was too much, raise closer to like 20 or 30, because th- that's more like the market norm. And, you know, it'll be easier to like close the raise. You don't want to be seen as too greedy. <laughs> and, and they, and we ended up compromising 40. So I'd rather have like raised lower amount, which means that there would have been fewer tokens given out, um, you know, in, in the initial raise, which means that we would have had a much longer runway, um, like to this very day. So that, that is like one big disagreement I had with them. But I wasn't running the project at the time. You know, I was advising them, and you know, we had to give them advice, and we kind of had to compromise with them. Um, so that's definitely like something I would have changed from the beginning. Um, there are other like little like details that I would have changed like here and there, um, but I can't really do anything about that now because you know that was like four years ago. Uh, yeah. But like in retrospect, yeah, I mean, obviously there were like you know different things I would have said. There's maybe different actions or different like you know. Um, you know, methods of persuasion that I would have like said or like words I would have used, but, um, you know, how, how about, how about more, how about more of the, uh, the, the vesting schedule or the distribution of the shares? I've asked people this and I, I usually get a pretty interesting response that people either structure their vesting of the founding team differently or investors. Yeah. Um, d- yeah, I know this yeah, is probably yeah, not. Yeah. So, so this was, this, 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 you don't have to do it. <laughs> Yeah, so so this was like another um, like disagreement I ha- I had with the team. So I wanted like the vesting to be longer and like the cliff to start longer, just so like people would be like you know stick around with Phantom a bit more before they started getting tokens. Um, but you know the original team was let's just say like a little bit greedy and did weren't really interested in launching like a long term protocol, which is why the technology wasn't true in the end. So they ended up like I remember like I, I remember like on the former CEO would get like 
tokens every month and just like dump them on the market. And he would ask someone within Phantom, uh, Phantom create him to do it. And I know that to be the case because I saw it myself with my own eyes and I, and I talked to the, to the Korean team about it because I used to spend quite a bit of time like in Korea in the Korean office. So I saw a lot of the stuff that I were up to firsthand, right? So, you know, clearly the reason why, you know, they didn't want like longer vesting was because, um, you know, they, they, they weren't really in it for the long term. So th- that was definitely another disagreement. Um, but, you know, I, I can't change that. <laughs> um, but like, that's yeah. kind of like how it played out. Yeah. And in hindsight, this, uh, it, w- did you say fraud earlier that you think it was l- not just a lack of desire to build it? It was. Oh, 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 well, oh we were, we were lied to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would just say the point blank because I, I have irrefutable proof and emails to show it. So for example, um, they produced this technical paper in, um, uh, June, uh, uh, June, July 2018, right? And it's reported to say that, well, this is like what we've been working on. Our original technology, ABFT, faster, better, cheaper, etc. Right, and so I remember Andre and I took took a look at look, look at it, right, and it looked pretty good. Um, but then I sent it to a friend in Sydney who was a bit suspicious, right. So this was a friend that was quite um experienced, uh, is quite experienced in distributed computing, and so he read through the paper and he was quite suspicious about the contents of it, right. So he ended up running the software through um this plagiarism software called it's called Turnitin. It's like what all the like universities in Australia use. And it, and it, and it turned out that equations were taken from the Hashcraft Swarz paper of 2017 or, or 2016, right? And so, and, and so, you know, you'll, you'll go through the paper and we had this kind of joke in like, <laughs> um, so I studied like finance and IT, right? We had this joke kind of in IT that, um, you know, kind of like the dumb people are the ones who are like, Oh, I'm just going to like steal someone's algorithm, right? But I'll be a bit clever, right? I don't know, I'll rename the variables, right? So I'll change like A to, Y, you know, B to X, you know, C to Z. And it's completely different, right? Ta-da! I'm like so, I'm like so smart, right? And so that's exactly what these guys did. They just like renamed the variables, but the actual equations themselves were the same. So it was equivalent, right? You know, and then once we pointed that out to them and we showed them the irrefutable proof, that's when they kind of admitted and they wrote back to us an email and said, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, we took shortcuts. We were under so much pressure, da-da-da. You know, I think what happened is that on... Um, had hired these two postdoc students that he knew and taught at y- Yonsei University, right? This is just my hypo- hypothesis. And I think they were not qualified to actually like work on this stuff. But because Arn was desperate to do the ICO, he, um, you know, pressured them. It's my belief. He pressured them to do it. Understanding, you know, um, the culture in Korea and having heard of people in the academic system in Korea, I believe that they were pressured. And so, you know, I'm not excusing them, right? But I'm just trying to give you the context of uh, what I think happened. And so they thought, oh, okay, we need to produce something. We're just going to take something that we believe works and then present it as ourselves, right? And so that's th- this is like the deception part, right? And so, you know, we had to like rebuild the whole team. Um, you know, um, um, Andre and I had to rebuild the team. And I remember, I remember um, learning about this. I was in the supermarket um, in July 2018 when I, when I had heard that... Um, my, my friend had discovered that it was plagiarized and I, my heart just sank, you know, I was like so disappointed and, you know, that disappointment like quickly turned to anger. Right. And so, you know, at that time I was prepared to quit. <coughs> um, but like Andre like, convinced me, he said, no, no, let's, let's try and work something out, you know, <coughs> raise about a, a bunch, a bunch of money. We can uh, use that like, funding, you know, to, to, to try and work on, you know, some new ideas about achieving the original vision. And, you know, I, you know, I have a background in distributed computing. So let's, let's work it out. Right. Because my background wasn't really in distributed computing. It was more like virtual machines, so like smart contract on um, uh, type of work. And so, um, you know, he and I kind of had to build like a new technology team, some of whom are still with us to this very day. And so <laughs> they were the ones that actually managed to build like a unique consensus algorithm. You know, this ABFT, sorry, what I mean by ABFT is being able to process transactions simultaneously, right? So instead of process, processing one block at a time, you have the network processing multiple, maybe five, six, seven at the same time. So you get more transaction throughput. So the new developers we, we brought on board actually managed to achieve the original vision. And that's the technology that we that we have today. It's, it's unique. It works well. It's open source. It's permissionless. Anyone can join and leave the network and it basically never goes offline, right? Like it hasn't been offline for a single millisecond mm-hmm. for the past year. So that, that, that is essentially what happened. 
um, to put it like quite bluntly. I mean, there's a lot more detail to it, <laughs> um, but I won't, I won't take up the next 72 hours of your life going through each and every interaction that I had uh, in, yeah. in the past. Because And it was also like, you know, 2018. So it was about four years ago or three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back then that was like, that was like a lot better. That was like the average. People, people were doing that left and right. I mean, that was probably like yeah, the yeah, default, yeah, yeah, I feel like yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like wh- when I went through this whole process, I thought, wow, it's so bad at Phantom, really. And then I heard stories from other projects and I was like, wow, actually in comparison to them, like, like objectively, like Phantom was like the whole experience was terrible, but <laughs> in comparison to other projects that launched around the same time, it actually was like the average. It, it's, it's kind of sad to say, but it was actually the average. And so, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I, I, I was a bit surprised, but then I kind of like learned. I was like, okay, so this kind of behavior is like, you know, has gone on a lot. You know, it kind of makes sense because, you know, when there's fast money, you know, people just want to like put out something there, raise a bunch of money and then figure out what to do later. Right. And I think that's exactly what the original team did. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I, le- I learned a lot and, and I was, and I was very optimistic about people in the past. Now I'm a bit more cynical. Uh, and that's one of the lessons <laughs> I learned. Like, don't, don't be trusting of people until you earn that, in, until they earn your trust, right? By their actions. So if they, ha- if they have trustworthy actions, then you can trust them. If you just meet them for the first time, don't just automatically assume that they're good people with good intentions and they tell you the truth. Just be kind of like neutral. That's like a big lesson that I learned. Mm, yeah, that's so true. At least they were not overtly maleficent. Maleficent. I mean, they, they didn't go out there saying well, well, that they have bad, bad intentions, right? It was like, hey, I, if, if, if that be well, true, right? Well, well, well actually, the, actually, there was a director... Well, actually, there was a director at Phantom that was going around stealing people's money. And I later found out was running two books for the ICO, right? So one book was, you know, the one that I was aware of where like, you know, people actually got token allocation in the end. And there was another book where um he promised people money. Um, uh, Sorry, he promised people tokens. He got the money in and he kept it for himself. So that was, that was, that was malicious intent. Absolutely malicious intent. Um, Not just to be clear, not by every single person in the Korean office, not by every single person that was involved in Phantom from the early days, but by a few of them, including the leadership. Because I'm talking about like a director here. So, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, and the leadership is toxic at the top, you know, and corrupt. It seeks down to the rest of the people. And so I remember talking to people in the Korean office who were like, like normal people. They weren't bad people. <laughs> and, they, you know, I remember one person saying to me, oh, you know, why should I care about Phantom when the people, when my boss doesn't care? That's so rough. Because I said, you know, why aren't you doing anything in the office? And he said, because my boss doesn't care. So why would I care about what I do? You know, nobody cares about Phantom. We're going to quit anyway. I mean, my boss is going to quit. Well, I know, have to ask you this. You hear, like, like that's that's what I heard. Like, like this is like this is terrible. But but again, I want to emphasize this is all. This is like 2018. So it's very different now. Yeah, like, like I stuck through it the whole way through. A lot of it has to do with like, you know, Andre convinced me to stay. I, I really have to say, um, and, and, and now, you know, like I, the, the team is a lot better. It's reformed. You know, obviously we still have disagreements from time to time, but none of this behavior goes on anymore. Yeah. It's a lot more, yeah. it's a lot more efficient and it's, it's a lot better. It's a lot better environment. One thing I want to ask you because it's so, such a fascinating, juicy story. So you're you're not even in the same country. You're just an advisor to this project at the time. How did you <laughs> acquire the assets? I mean, what what right do you have that you went in and said, "Hey, we're going to own the domain. We're going to own the." I mean, what what are the assets, and how did you? Did the government get involved and say we're going to kick these guys out and give you access? <laughs> because of the way that we served the original company. Um, the, the people in Korea, I point, I pointed someone from our side as like, um, it's a bit technical, but like I pointed someone outside as like, what's known as like the founder for one of these, like Cayman Islands foundation companies. Right. You know, and then they consented to appointing me as a director. And so, you know, on, 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 um, on the directorship, it changed a little bit. Um, but basically in, uh, in early 2019, it was myself and it was, um, uh, the chairman of the company, he's still the chairman, called David Richardson. Um, and it was um, myself. Uh, sorry, it, it was myself, David Richardson, and it was the former CEO, Dr. Ahn, right? And so, you know, as directors of the company, you know, people would like appoint and remove 
CEOs, right? And, you know, I had known about other activities he had been up to, right? Um, you know, let, let's just say misappropriation of funds and, and other bad activities. And so, you know, we wrote it out to him and said, you know, because you were, you know, you've not told us the truth consistently because you, you know, have, have not like answered our questions about like where funds have gone because you admitted to, you know, taking funds and spending them on areas that were not authorized, um, including on yourself. You know, we're going to remove your CEO. And the, the way that I see it and the way that David sees it is that we didn't have, you know, <laughs> we didn't have a choice. You know, this wasn't like, um, you know, a question about feelings. This was a question about like our fiduciary responsibility. Because, because as a director, you have a fiduciary responsibility, you know, not to have your funds misappropriated. And so if you know that like someone is misappropriating the funds, you know, and, and you allow that to happen, um, on your, on your watch, you can potentially get right. into a lot of trouble as a director, right? Yeah, exactly. You can be. And so we had to take action and, and, uh, and, and that's what happened. And, you know, obviously we consulted lawyers and, you know, fought this through about the best way. But this was absolutely the right decision. You know, you know, people ask me, oh, what's the best decision you ever made at Phantom? And I always say, this is what, this was the best decision <laughs> because had we, you know, had I, like I resigned and let, you know, the, the Korean team keep running it, Phantom would have died because the guy, the guy didn't care about the project. I mean, <laughs> you know, he had, he, he, he got like Phantom, this big, like expensive office space in Korea <laughs> in this building. His office was like a few levels above, if I remember correctly. And because he was running a, his own company called Shikshin, this food technology company, and he had an office in Shikshin, but he didn't have an office in the Phantom office. And, and people in the Korean office were telling me, oh, he never comes down. He's always upstairs. So, so, so how, so how can he be a CEO of this company where the team is like in one location, but he's never there? That, that just shows you he doesn't care. That just shows you he cares more about his own company, Shikshin, than it did of Phantom. Um, mm. So, you know, there, there's many other like stories and like details I can get into, but mm. uh, again, like it, it could, you know, may, maybe for another time because it could take up let me, too long. Yeah. Let me just ask you this in hindsight now, what, what's your <laughs> emotional attitude to the whole situation? Do you feel angry? Do you feel uh, vindicated or resolved or... I, I, I feel kind of vindicated, you know, because of like, you know, how successful Phantom has been since then. <laughs> you know, even though we've had like a rocky past few months in part because of some like, you know, narratives around Phantom and also a large part because of the market conditions. Um, you know, on the whole, like Phantom is like exponentially bigger than it was, you know, back then a few years ago. It's, you know, you, you, you measure it by the technology, you measure it by the number of users, you measure it by the applications. It's exponentially bigger. And I think we really turned it around. Like, as Andre would say, you know, we, we, we kind of like, we kind of like unscammed it, right? Like, which is a bit unusual, right? Like, it, it, this doesn't happen. Like, people in 2018, 2019 were telling me consistently, you know, why do you waste your time on this? Everyone knows that, you know, you know, it's over, you know, you know, give up and that sort of thing. And I didn't. I like persevered and I turned out to be right. And other people persevered. You know, like, like Andre and a few others on the team, <laughs> um, despite all this negativity and, and we were proven right so far. Right. Um, yeah. and in terms of like anger, like, yeah, like if I keep, you know, I, I think I'm a little, a little bit emotional in the corner. You know, when, when I talk about the past and what happened, like it brings up memories and it's very raw in my brain. Like, like obviously, like I'm still like a bit like angry about it, but I'm not, I'm not angry on a, on a daily basis anymore. You know, I'm kind of a bit, I wouldn't say like over it, but I've kind of like, I, I, when I've thought about the past, I haven't really been thought about like, oh, you know, oh, I hated this so much, right? It's more about like, oh, you know, w w what lessons can I learn, right? You know, because of mistakes on my part, you know, mistakes of being naive, mistakes of, you know, I remember like questioning the technology, you know, not really, really getting like the right uh, uh, or like good responses back, kind of like hand wavy responses about, you know, technical questions about how the technology worked, how they did peer selection fast and all that sort of stuff, right? And, you know, back then I was like, wow. You know, I did look at the credentials, their, you know, PhDs, associate professors. Wow. Maybe these people are just so much smarter than me because my background isn't in, you know, distributed computing. It's in, you know, a different type of programming. It's got like virtual machine analysis. So these guys must just be like so much smarter than me. And I don't really know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I, I you know, I, I just, I, I just trust them because I just got my bachelor's and they've had much more ex academic experience than I have. Right. And I realized that was a mistake. You, you never just trust people 
because of like their authority, right? Or what credentials they have, right? It's called, you know, it's a logical fallacy. It's called the appeal to authority, right? You, you don't ever want to do that. You want to look at everything in terms of the logic and reasoning and arguments and, you know, and the data and the facts behind it. That's a big lesson I learned. So never trust someone just because of who they are or uh, about like w- whether what they say or not is, is correct. Just think about logically what, what they've been saying. And, and, and sometimes that can be difficult to do because you don't have complete information. There's an element of trust there, but you need to like really follow like logic and reasoning and not just say like, whoa, this guy just must be so much smarter than me. Because in some cases, it may not actually be the case. Yeah. Well, I feel anybody in your situation would have made the same decision. I mean, when you're working with people that have that kind of background, it's like, it's beyond your, I think it's the vast majority of people would have done the same thing, which is to say that you by default trust smart people. I think someone with more experience would have made different decisions to me. Um, you know, I, I was, <laughs> I'm a bit more experienced now. I wouldn't say I'm super experienced and I know everything, but like I have a little bit more experience now, um, compared to like a few years ago. Um, but I think someone, you know, really, who had like much more experience than me at the time, you know, would have, you know, um, uh, you know, they would have made different, um, decisions or like given different answers. And, you know, maybe things would have been like a bit different. Maybe they would have, you know, made what I believe is the right decision in the end a bit faster than like, you know, the decision that I made, but also like, you know, I wanted to change things very early on. Like the, the triggering point for me was when, when this plagiarism thing happened, right? Um, because that was like, that was to me, it's like, it's like a no, no, right? Like you're always told at universities, well, frankly, that, you know, if you plagiarize and there's all these warnings, you know, if you plagiarize, you can be expelled, right? And you'll never be welcomed back, even just one case, right? And so, you know, to, to plagiarize, for an ICO where you told people certain things about your technology that weren't true and you presented and, and, and you claimed that you had like a test net and you didn't and you raised $40 million is I think even more serious than that, right? More serious than academic misconduct. It's like a hundred times worse. And so that for me was a triggering point. And like, again, like honestly, maybe someone with more experience than me, like, you know, by themselves would have decided to stay, but it was just by myself, I would have left. And so I really, you know, have to give credit for Andre for keeping me around uh, because, you know, ha- had I just quit and, you know, everyone just quit, I-, I don't think Phantom would be where it is because I think, I think my biggest contribution was being the, being the one that like really tried to push through like the right decision, which was to like reform the team. You know, everything else pales in comparison, in my opinion. Yeah, and I'm just saying that to, to you know to talk on my book. I think that was like the critical turning point. And and nowadays, you know, I think the successful phantom is not really due to me. You know, it's due to people like Andre in the past. You know, building up like our treasury reserves, especially in 2020. It's to do with the it's to do with the developers who have been building out you know the technology in the ground because I don't really do much development anymore. It's the people in the ecosystem that are building out the ecosystem. You know. You know, I still play a role. Um, you know, like you know, helping you know, trying to bring projects projects for Phantom and doing you know, like general in administration and CEO stuff. But I think you know that's not really as important as like m- many other people in the community nowadays. I, I don't think I'm, I'm as useful as I used to be in the past. Yeah, well, it's only through the decisions you made at the time and the decisions other people made at the time that allowed you to be sitting here on this podcast running Phantom in the way that you are. And I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, it's an act of almost hubris to label things as good and bad because we don't know. We don't know, right? Like, who knows how, what, how things play out and how things reshape uh, our, our world. So all those experiences, man, that's like, you can't learn those things unless you live through them. You can hear heuristics and cliches. People can say idioms and that kind of stuff but yeah. until you live it you don't learn it I, I don't well I, I guess you can learn from other people's experiences and i think it's very important to learn from other people's experience you know i've you know watched people you know just just in my spare time you know you like watch stories on youtube or just like listen to like people's stories about <laughs> you know not necessarily to do with crypto but just like how they live their lives right because everyone's lived unique lives <clears throat> and um you know because everybody's like had like their own unique experiences <laughs> and you know you only live once right and so you don't have the time in the world to live you know gain the same personal experience as 10 other people as 20 other people or even like the same experience as like 
like one other person, right? Was everyone's lived their own life and everybody has a, has like lived it uniquely, right? And so I think it is important to like learn, you know, stories and experiences from other people. Obviously, like, you know, when you experience it yourself, it's more raw. There's a lot more emotion mixed into it. There's a lot more like feeling at the time. Um, so that kind of is a, is a difference. Um, you know, you know, for me, like, I think what I've learned is, you know, when you think about the past, like, obviously, you know, in hindsight, it's very, very easy to think about things and be like, okay, you know, that obviously was wrong. That obviously was the right decision. That obviously was the wrong decision, you know, and this is the best way to have done things, right? Um, but you, but you don't want to look at, at it that way. You just want to look at it in terms of like, okay, so if I'm presented in, in a similar situation going forward, how do I avoid the mistakes that I made in the past, you know, and, and, and make the right ones? I, I mean, that's what's important. Um, you know, mm-hmm. reflect on the past. You uh, don't reflect in terms of like, okay, I should have done this or shouldn't have done that. Reflect in the past and think about what can I do better next time? You know, if you're presented in a similar situation. You know, I, I don't think personally myself, I'll be presented in the same unique situation that happened in the Phantom, or at least I hope not. But, it, you know, if I'm presented with something similar or... You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. You know, um, um, similar things that or warning signs that I see, I think I know how to find them better and how to look at the flags and kind of swim between the flags. Use the swimming analogy, right? You know, to stay safe and to also like warn other people as well. Um, that, that, that that's what I think is important. Mm, yeah, so true, so true. And it is very unlikely you'll be in the same situation. But I think to your point earlier. Learning, learning about what other people have suffered through or the mistakes that they claim that they've made helps make each individual person a more, it builds out their mental model. I like that term mental model, which is the, the yeah. set of, uh, beliefs that you hold about other people, yourself, the world, and, and helps shape your pathway through it. You can use that as effectively like guardrails or bumpers on a bowling lane. Like it, it, it provides, it provides a, a, a philosophy of life, really, for lack of a better word. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's like, I'm sure you learned a lot, but also the impact that you've had on other people. And also think about the impact that your experience, your story, everyone that hears your story, the, the, the benefit to other people's lives that you will never know about. You know, it's like society, our society is as strong as we each are able to build out our mental models for determining what trust is, right? Like that has to be the biggest conversation in the world today is what mechanism should we use to determine trust? I mean, when we boil it down, like media and public health and government, it's like that's that's really a huge part of what we're asking ourselves today. Crypto certainly plays a role in that, I'm sure. Yeah. Blockchain plays a major role, but it goes beyond that as well. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of trust, you know, as I mentioned before, um, you know, whenever like people would like say stuff to you, you always have to think about, you know, what's the motivate, what's the motivation and intention of saying stuff to you, right? And this is why, like, I don't really trust politicians because your know, politicians' incentive are to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? But usually, you know, in democracies, there's you know, more free stuff, right? You know, we've got an election in Australia where both from the major parties, you know, when like in major debt. We've got an election coming up in 12 days and every single day they're promising billions of dollars in more spending, you know, on this, that, and the other. And they don't talk about like, okay, who will actually pay for it? You know, you know is it going to be like our children, you know, because they can't vote? Is it going to be- let, let me ask you this. Born? You don't even exist now. So- <laughs> I, I, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Totally like, I, I, what you're saying. Like, no. Well, let me let me ask you one one nuanced question about this. So, Sorry. W- have you seen a politician get up there and say, "Okay, here is our budget. Here's how much debt we're in. Here's our relative growth projections." Uh, do you do you see? I wonder how much is going on. That's like it's like a consensus 
it's like consensus mechanism in people's minds where every politician is thinking in their head, I have to act like a politician. I have to do what other people do. They tend to just prioritize what people want and give away things. Is that just a culture of politics or do you think that that mechanism is actually tested? Like, are there people saying, pushing back on that? Well, what did Warren Buffett say? Like, if you show me the incentive, I'll show you the result, right? So the incentive is to win votes, right? So they don't care about people who can't vote right now or people who won't be able to vote for a while, right? Because they, they're worried about you know, the next election, not worry about election 20 years from now because you know, they won't be around for 20, you know, 20 years longer. You know, they'll be retired and enjoying their lives and government pensions, right? You know, I have seen a few politicians um, talk about the truth. You know, there's not many, though. You know, to name a few, you know, Ron Paul, he was a big influence in my life. You know, it's kind of how I came up with the political philosophy um, or how I like, you know, adopted the political philosophy of libertarianism, you know, back in 2007 and 2008 because of his presidential campaign. I know a lot of people um, also as well, like that's when they first heard of Ron Paul. You know, his son Rand Paul is pretty good. <laughs> um, there's also Thomas Massey, um, a, a, a Republican in the US Congress. He's also uh, told a lot about the truth, but there's not many politicians who do it, you know, because again, you know, what's the incentive? The incentive is to just like say to voters what you think they want to hear so they get elected, not necessarily what you believe is in the best interest. And, and, and that's the difference. Um, and so just coming back to trust, you know, in, in your personal lives, you know, think about like how, not just what people say, but what they actually do. You know, do they, do they perform actions that, that seem trustworthy, right? <laughs> you know, do they say, you know, do they say and do stuff? Um, you know, do they actually do what they say, right? And, you know, is the story straight? Are they, are they very easy to understand? Because in my opinion, <laughs> um, you know, and we got a lot of these people in fandom, fortunately, you know, we've got like great developers and individuals who, you know, I think are just fundamentally trustworthy and they've always been that way, you know. And, you know, when I think about like the attitudes and what they say to me and what they've done, you know, the, the more straight it is, you know, the more easy to understand it is, the better, the better the sign, right? Because if somebody is very easy to understand about what the intentions is, you know, I just want to, no, I'm working in Phantom. I want to do what's best in Phantom. Here's what I think we should do. Execute it. Okay. Here's what I think we should do. Execute it. That's like easy to understand. Someone who's deceptive is someone that you always have doubts about. And you're like, oh, you know, are they saying stuff to me because they're trying to trick me? You know, are they doing this 4D chess so they can get me to like say or do something, you know, for their own personal benefit? You know, oh, is somebody like actually doing something because, you know, it's in the interest for themselves? Do they have a conflict of interest? You know, for some people that you can't trust, you always have to be worried about those sorts of things, right? So the, so the road is like very like windy and very like hard to figure out, right? But people who are just like honest and decent are just like, they're just like a straight road. They're just easy to understand. And so anyone who you think is like easy to understand is, is, is someone who's probably trustworthy. So, you know, we've got developers on our team who, you know, I've never seen, I've never caught them out in a lie. They've always tried the best. You know, sometimes, you know, they, they might make mistakes in the coding or whatever, but they own up to it. And so, you know, they're very, very trustworthy and everything they say and what they do is consistent. And so I, I trust, you know, these people completely. You know, and, and, and that's the sort of people you need on your team. If you have people on your team that you have doubts about, you need to think about, you know, whether they're, they're the right people on your team. Mm. So true. So true. If that makes sense. It's about consistency. I, yeah. Mm. You know, if someone's story doesn't add up, th there's something wrong, you know? Yeah. I once heard this uh, piece of business advice that was like, most CEOs think about recruiting the top talent. That's where all their emphasis is and making the top talent that they have on the team better. When in reality, a very under invested in part of company building is uh, removing the, the, the worst performing talent. So if you think about it out of a percentage of a hundred people, there's roughly like 80% of people who are just good performers. They're going to do their job well and they come in, they don't put in extra hours, but they're like solid workers. Then there's 10% or more like 15% who are the overachievers, people who really kick ass and they end up building what like half of the team builds. And then there's the 5%. And the 5% are what you're referring to, which is they're politically motivated by their own gain over the company. And 
they are willing to throw other people under the bus, not make any progress, and then make it look like they're making progress. They're effectively dragging people down. And when that number gets big, then it starts to atrophy the rest of the team. The top players see that. They don't want to be a part of it. They leave, and then the rest of the team starts to leave as they, as they see that happen. And then when you hit a certain critical number, like 20% of the team is like that, it's just the whole thing deteriorates and goes nowhere. So it's, it's, it's just as important as it is to maximize the efficiency of the top performing people is to, to get rid of people who have that attitude. So thought I'd throw that in there as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. It's it's a play, it's a Pareto principle. I mean, I, I think in general with the Pareto principle, it's it's the so called like eighty twenty rule rule, right? Which is like twenty percent of the people will do eighty percent of the work. And I think yeah, in just in life in general, that's um, that's how it is. You know, <clears throat> um, that's that's one reason why we have like inequality, which you know is debatable about whether that's like a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but when you have like you know you have inequality because some people are just a lot more efficient than others, right? Some people are better at just like managing resources and, and, and doing things more efficiently than other people. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to work. I think it's the same thing when it comes to just like getting stuff done. It's 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 a Pareto principle. Yeah. Um, and, and just your comment about hiring the top talent. I, I, I Just to add to that, I, I think, you know, that's only half of the equation. You, you do obviously want to hire the top talent, right? You want to hire the smartest people, the best people, the most productive people. But... You also need to hire the people who are the most trustworthy, <clears throat> um, because you can hire someone who you know is like really smart, talented, very productive, but maybe not trustworthy. And if you hire someone who is not trustworthy, if you hire someone who's only half of the equation, it will be a disaster for your team. <clears throat> yeah, I've hired a couple of developers who yeah were appeared to be quite smart and talented, but they were not they they were not good team players. They were just n- not good characters. They didn't know how to work with other people. They had, you know, issues with like ego and arrogance. And, you know, the work that they turned out was only partially completed. And so we had to let them go. And so you want to hire people with good character who are trustworthy and who are very talented. This is why, like, when I hire hire developers going forward, you know, I I, I talk to them and I can ask them technical questions because I have somewhat of a technical understanding. But I always defer it to the existing core development team about whether they want to hire this person or not. Because in the end, they're going to be working with this individual. If they don't, if they don't think he's qualified enough or she's qualified enough, if they don't think that this person is a good person to be working with, who has the right character, then it's not going to work out. Because I don't want to impose upon my existing developers any new developers that they don't want to work with. And so for me, my like our developers always have veto power over you know the decision making, right? So if they don't want to hire a developer, we won't. I, I won't hire that person. If they want to hire a developer, I will hire that person. You know, so I'm very, very like um, receptive to that feedback because they're the ones who can make the bus to uh, to make the best judgment. They're the ones who you can hire the best developers, and they they're the ones that have the best understanding much more than I do. And so, if you can defer, you know, to, to people in your organization who are trustworthy and who have the right knowledge to make the right decisions, you should always do that. You know, if, if if someone can make a better decision with your organization than you can, you let them make the decision. And, and that can be hard to yeah. identify, yeah. but you want to be in that position. That's a good position to be in. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good piece of advice. Um, it might about the, the <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's that's universally true. As much as you can do it, harder to get when you're much larger, but regardless. Uh, when you think about the 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 what you have now on the table. You have the ecosystem, which is the developers building on the layer one, what you've built, protocol. Then you have your in-house developers, right? You're the people employed by the foundation. Yeah. Is is the trajectory of the foundation down? Like it, as the community and ecosystem continue to grow, will the end state of the foundation, I mean, are you trying to decrease it or minimize the budget there? Or is there a pool of money coming from the token, like a percentage of the token gets sold back to the foundation or some mechanism for sustaining the foundation? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. I mean, uh, the, the kind of the parallel I like to draw, like I, I did at the beginning of the conversation, is really between like Phantom Foundation and Ethereum Foundation, uh, Phantom Ecosystem, Ethereum Ecosystem. So as the Ethereum Ecosystem gets bigger, I want the foundation's influence to be progressively less of, of, of an influence, right? Um, uh, to the point, ideally, where 
and the fandom ecosystem runs by itself. But I think in the end, there will always still be a foundation, just like there's a firm foundation. Of, but the but the influence of the foundation will decrease over time, and you know we're kind of seeing that already. So obviously, like a couple of years ago, when the chain first launched, or two and a half years ago, you know there wasn't really an ecosystem; it was just a foundation, right? So everything was like pretty much foundation driven. But nowadays, a lot of things are not foundation driven; they're ecosystem driven. They're driven by you know developers and users, and so the founder foundation obviously still you know, has an influence. Like people know who we are, you know, we have resources, we have developers. Um, but that's be- that's like less important than it was in the past. That being said, you know, as I mentioned before, our aim is to keep growing the ecosystem. So you know, we want to you know keep growing it over time. But progressively, you know, we'll be like I envision that we'll be less involved in business development. We'll be less involved in growing the ecosystem. We'll be more involved in just purely focusing on the technology. Um, and and so in the long run, if the foundation can just really end up being focusing on the technology. You know, over the like uh, several years and the ecosystem just kind of grows by itself. Like what's happened with the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum ecosystem where the Ethereum Foundation is really focusing, you know, more on education, more on technology, more on giving grants to providers rather than, you know, um, you know, business development or, you know, encouraging projects like directly to deploy on Ethereum. If we can be in the same situation for the Phantom Foundation, then I think we've, we've achieved our aim and I think we've been successful. Yeah. Certainly, the Ethereum project has been an inspiration for you, and I'm sure your partners as you design yeah. everything. Uh, how do you see the 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 places where you've marked your territory? Like, wh- in what ways have you talked to developers who are building on on Phantom? In what ways do you feel that you've uh, really distinguished yourself, either culturally or technically, to attract people? Yeah. So, so um, technically speaking, first, <laughs> I think one of the key differences between Phantom and other technologies is that you know, one, we we have a technology where you can process multiple transactions simultaneously and achieve like uh, finality, right? So you know, not not have probabilistic finality, not have finality you know in the long chain rule, which is a security issue, but to have finality, um, that's what we call deterministic after one block, right? And to be able to do all of that in a fast manner and in a manner where the network doesn't go offline. Even when, you know, there's a lot of activity on the network, like, for example, like more recently when, you know, there were like liquidations taking place, um, the Phantom protocol or Phantom ecosystem never went offline. It worked exactly as intended. And so I think that's a unique selling point for us. The fact that the Phantom chain never goes offline. It's extremely reliable and robust. It has multiple layers of fault tolerance. So a developer that builds a Phantom can be assured of that. And a developer... And the builds of Phantom can also be assured that there are like many other improvements coming down the line, which will decrease transaction costs and increase network throughput. Um, so for example, um, we just released a major upgrade today uh, called SnapSync. And SnapSync allows you to synchronize nodes very fast between one another. So to launch a node on Phantom and to keep it up with the main chain is a fraction of the time as it was in the past. And you know, you can do all of that with far less resources than was required in the past. And you can and this will allow us to basically increase the network throughput. And we've got uh, like other fixes down the line, you know, improving the smart contract execution engine, improving the um, the amount of data that it gets processed by nodes. So all of these changes are coming down the pipeline. It is our number one priority. And so developers know that it, uh, can be assured that the technology will get better over time. So that's the technology point. On the cultural part, you know, the, the Phantom ecosystem has grown organically. You know, we haven't gone around and, and said to people, oh, we'll give you like a million dollars to point Phantom. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. And had to convince people one at a time. The growth for the Phantom ecosystem has been completely unique. So the people who are on the Phantom ecosystem are there because they're loyal, because they love it. They love the community. They love talking to people. They just like love being there and they love the applications that are on there. So you have, I, I figure, I, I feel like we have quite sticky users. I mean, most users like on the whole use multiple blockchains and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that trend will continue into the future, but a lot of people who are on, who are on Phantom, who use multiple blockchains, do love Phantom a lot. And so if you deploy on Phantom, you get access you know, to all of these users who are already there, these hundreds of thousands of users, and the foundation can actively help you like attract those users, you know, by doing marketing, by helping you with integration work, by helping you, you know, possibly financing and investment as well. And so, you know, this is something that we've offered like a lot of other projects and we have a lot of uh, robust infrastructure um, developed, a lot of like API nodes, a lot of, um, you know, different services that people can rely on. And we've also got a couple of interesting other services in the pipeline right now that will make contracts much more secure and 
and safe and continuous auditing done for projects on chain that are not are unique technologies and are not really available on other chains, um, which is coming down a bit uh, uh, down the line. So, so there's a number of reasons why I think people should develop on Phantom, obviously, and uh, and I'm biased, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Good, <laughs> as you should be. Uh, w- w- what percent? If you had to just throw a number, <laughs> the same. Up, I'm biased. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, do, uh, look, on that note, do you do you feel like there's a like a like an inspiring competitive element to uh, Ethereum and Near or some of the other Layer One chains out there? I mean, not not in any malicious way. It's not like you're gonna fight each other but in a competitive like healthy sense does that attitude persist where you're like you know you're you're inspired to compete and build something better Uh, so i think you broke up there but i I think your question was about like you know is it like a competitive spirit right Mm -hmm. is that correct Mm -hmm. um yeah so um (coughs) uh, there definitely is and i think that's a very positive thing like with like like, like with many like businesses and, and things in life, right? Like competition helps bring out the best in like technology, right? It helps bring out the best result. And I think, you know, like all markets are competitive, right? Including, um, you know, the cryptocurrency, the blockchain market that we're in. So I think the competition between the L1s is first and, for, for, first and foremost about technology. Who can get most scalable as quickly as possible? Who can develop the best technology, which is the most efficient, which allows you to get the most users and basically optimizes for you know, the user experience in the three ways that I mentioned before, you know, fast transactions, cheap transactions, and secure transactions. <laughs> and so for Phantom, like, you know, we've taken a bit of a different approach to the technology problems that we've identified than the other chains out there. So, you know, other chains are focusing on like core development around like, you know, um, around like subnets and, and other such ideas, which may or may not work in the end, layer two technologies. <laughs> but with Phantom, you know, we're much more focused on uh, we've noticed our consensus is very, very fast, but the other like technologies related to the consensus in terms of transaction processing are actually quite slow. So that's what we're working on, as well as replacing you know the smart contract execution engine that we inherited from Ethereum with our own execution engine. Because no matter like how scalable you make the core technology, <laughs> if you still got limitations of, and you want to be a smart contract engine or a smart contract platform like Phantom, if you're limited by the EVM, um, then that's still like a bit bottleneck. So that's something that we're tackling that I noticed a lot of other projects have actually discussed and appear, at least publicly from what I can see, appear to know what the problems are, but are, are focused on other scalability solutions. So I think these other layer ones are tackling, you know, uh, we're all tackling the same problem, scalability, but I think we're tackling it in different ways. And I think that's healthy because in the end, it encourages us to compete, it encourages us to create the best technology. And in the end, We'll get much more scalable technology, which will allow us to get that hyperbolic growth to be as big as the internet. Because I think in the long run, blockchain technology will be as ubiquitous as the internet. You know, just like the early days of the internet, if you watch videos from like 1991, two and three, you know, people were talking about what is the internet, what are browsers, all of this stuff is weird. I feel like people talk about crypto in the same way. Wow, what is MetaMask? What are, you know, what are wallets? This is all weird, right? But people eventually learn over time and they get used to it. And then they just like have network effects, right? They just tell their friends, their friends, uh, become more educated and they can use the technology. But we need to increase the scalability of the technology to get to that level. But I think it will happen in the end. And so that's why on the whole, I'm very optimistic about blockchain technology. I think it will be a big part of our future going forward. You know, it may take, you know, another five or 10 years before we get much more adoption than we already have. But I think it will happen in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really a, a download speed problem of how long does it take the, uh, the, the tools and products that are built out there for, for, to download in people's brains. You know, it's like you have to I- explain what these things are. People have to understand it and use it and then on, and then build on top of that. Um, man, we cruise through this hour. We've been chatting for, yeah, just about 60 minutes now. Michael, are you, avid uh, writer on any blogs or are you personally on any twitter or social media that you want to throw out there yeah unfortunately i don't really do like much writing these days but i am available on twitter it's at michael f kong so k-o-n-g and then of course like please follow us at phantom fdn so at phantom fdn is our official phantom.foundation account that's where like a lot of details are released on you know, uh, pretty much like, I, th- I think like every few hours we have some sort of like tweet or retweet that goes out there about 
new technology, like our new release today, about other projects that are launching with Phantom, about upcoming like AMAs that you can participate in or interviews that are happening or events. Um, so um, if you follow us on Twitter and myself on Twitter, you'll see a lot of that content. Awesome. Really enjoy chat with you, man. Congrats on all the progress so far. Mm-hmm. Phantom's an awesome project. And I mean, it's an awesome name. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it kind of tastes like, uh, I, I think of Phantom, Phantom of the Opera, but it's like Phantom is like a, like a dark horse almost. So keep crushing, man. Um, oh, thank you so oh, much. Thank you very Appreciate much. You coming on, on today. Yeah, I really appreciate it as well. And if I could just like make one f- final comment, mm-hmm. I, I know like, um, you know, right now, you know, uh, the, the sentiment isn't very good, not not just like with regards to Phantom, but with regards to crypto as a whole. But I want to, you know, assure people, you know, <laughs> the, the Phantom went through like a bear market in, in, in 2018, 2019, and we just put our heads down and we worked to get to the position where we're on in now. If we are in a bear market right now, and there's a lot of indications that maybe we are because of, you know, macroeconomic factors, et cetera, you know, be rest assured the foundation is still here. We're, we, we're, we're in a much better position than we were a couple of years ago. And so we're just going to keep building and keep releasing stuff. And so, you know, we're, we're in it for the long run. And we're, we're, we're very, very, we're, uh, we're in a much stronger position. Yeah. I love it. Very straightforward and matter of fact. And so is the ecosystem I, too. Yeah. High trustworthy. <laughs> All right, dude. Keep doing your thing. Great talking with you. All right, thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for the time. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.